0: 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll be looking this evening at verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, or to tamper with god's word but by the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of god and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled only to those who are perishing in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory uh, of the glory of From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace as we study your word tonight. Father, we thank you for these words. Thank you for how they have ministered to and encouraged your servants and your church over the years. And Father, as we take them up and look at them tonight, we pray that they would feed our souls and encourage us and instruct us in the Christian life and in our service to you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. During the course of my seminary training, Barbara and I had the opportunity to spend a year living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now, Barbara and I both grew up in South Mississippi, and I had begun seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and so to move to Philadelphia and live in this large northeastern city uh, was, to put it mildly, crossing some cultural boundaries. We met people like Tom and Jane Petit up there, for instance. And uh, actually, they were up there. Tom was with GCP when GCP was up there in Philadelphia, and Barbara worked for them while we were there. Jane was working in the Westminster Seminary Library. Uh But certainly there were a lot of cultural adjustments that we had to make. Some of them were difficult and some of them were uh, quite a uh, breath of fresh air, to be honest. Uh, one of the things that we found uh, interesting about living in the Philadelphia area and getting to know some of the people up there was a tendency in a very different direction than one you find in the South. Now, I don't want to stereotype people are people, and there are kinds of different personalities, uh, no matter what geographical region of the country you happen to be in. But on the whole, we found that with people in Philadelphia, you pretty much had a good idea what they thought and where you stood with them. Now, by contrast, as Southerners, we not to say we're dishonest, but we, we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. We want to be nice, and sometimes we may not say exactly what we're thinking, or we might tra- try to portray things in the best light, or we might just be passive-aggressive, to use the psychological term, and, and just seethe on the inside, even as we smile at someone on the outside. Now, again, pretty broad strokes, but typically uh, with a rather clipped Philadelphia accent, you knew pretty much where you stood. They really had a much higher tendency toward plain speaking, and if the truth hurt, well, that's your problem in the city of Brotherly Shove. So, uh, as we come to our text tonight, uh, Paul isn't talking about Northerners or Southerners, uh, but he is talking about plain speaking. And plain speaking, in an area that matters the most, and that is when it comes to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've seen, as we've looked at Second Corinthians, particularly chapter 3, Paul is describing his place, his calling, his responsibility as a minister of the new covenant, which leads him then to explain some of the things that make this a new covenant, and to contrast it with, what the people of God had under the old covenant. Now, be careful that you do not confuse old covenant, new covenant with covenant of works, covenant of grace. The covenant of works was the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve. Remember, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Uh, And, of course, they did. They, They broke the covenant and could no longer be in relationship with God by means of it. And God institutes immediately the covenant of grace that uh, picks up in Genesis chapter 3. The very fact that we're still standing, the very fact that God could come and talk to them was grace. That they didn't collapse immediately. And they did die. And their relationship with God was forever changed. Uh, However, God came and spoke of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. Uh, The first gospel, the proto-evangel, the first hint of the uh, Messiah uh, that we find in the in the Bible there in Genesis chapter three, but the covenant of grace from that point on through the Old Testament was we refer to as the old covenant, which functioned under the under the the, the law, under the sacrifices, the whole priesthood, sacrificial system, the laws that God gave to Israel for how they were to worship with the temple. All that was bound up in that. And uh, then the new covenant is not, strictly speaking, a different covenant, but a new and greater manifestation of the covenant of grace, uh, reflecting the fact that the Messiah has come and has accomplished the work the Father sent him to do of dying for our sins, being raised for our justification, as Paul says in Romans 4, and uh, ascending to the right hand of the Father and having given His Holy Spirit to the church. Again, refer to Jeremiah 31 last time, uh, a key passage describing this this new covenant that is to come, and how the old covenant was fading. It was a provisional or temporary arrangement that would be superseded by uh, and completed by the new covenant in Christ. Now, Paul begins this passage with the word, Therefore, and he really is drawing out the application of that. What does it mean now for the Christian life, uh, for ministry, whether as an apostle or a minister of the gospel, or for all of us as followers of Christ to live as beneficiaries of the new covenant? What does that look like? What does that mean for how we live and for how we minister uh, in this culture in which God has placed us? Well, what Paul has to say in a nutshell here is that our ministry to others, our witness to others, should consist in the plain statement of gospel truth and relying on God to bring people to faith in Him. Our ministry uh, as a church, for me, for you, our witness as believers in our neighborhoods, at work, whatever, should consist in plain statements of gospel truth along with relying on God to use his truth to bring people to saving faith in Christ. So let's look at how Paul fleshes this out. This kind of witness, this kind of ministry, basically stands on three legs. The first one is personal integrity, leg of personal integrity. Look at what Paul says, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The first thing that Paul describes here is personal integrity. Now, as we've seen, that's important because he has been taken to task for lacking integrity on the accusations and the insinuations of those who have also had an influence with, have gained the ear of at least segments of the church in Corinth. And Paul not only uh, defends his own integrity here, but he also uh, implies some things about those who are his detractors in the church in Corinth or trying to reach the church in Corinth. Now, personal integrity. Whether it's the Apostle or in his day or us in our day, uh, a big part of ministry, a big part of our witness has to do with who we are. Even more, at least at first, than the truth that we speak. Now, that's important too, but it has to be coming from uh, a person of integrity. Now, Paul mentions this. In the first place, uh, having to do with personal integrity, we should see the opportunities God gives us uh, as just that god given doors god given opportunities for service, and look at what Paul says, verse one, having this ministry by the mercy of God, literally having this ministry, and as we have received mercy, the sense seems to be exactly what the ESV has here that by the mercy of God, uh, Paul has received the ministry. That he has. You recall Paul, when he wrote, wrote to Timothy, described his own background uh, as an unbeliever and as a persecutor of the church. And he says, God, uh, in his mercy, has found me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul saw that always as, as an expression of God's grace, an expression of God's mercy that God would entrust him with that stewardship that he had. Well, if that's true for Paul, it's true for me. It's true for you. The opportunities that God gives you, he does so out of his grace, out of his mercy. Uh, And they are, in fact, obviously, in God's providence, everything is is brought to us by him. But these opportunities that he places before us are just that, things that he has done. If you've ever been through uh, evangelism explosion training, they speak of divine appointments. Uh, you know, we could broadly say everything is a divine appointment. But what they mean is where God brings us into someone's life or into contact with someone in a in a teachable moment or an opportune time to speak to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, for those of you who heard Hunter Bailey this morning, uh, he was speaking about. The context for that, and typically the best way is not door-to-door evangelism, although God can use that too, but the context of a relationship, the context of getting to know someone, so that they have opportunity not just to hear about Jesus from your lips, but to see your life, to see that you are a person of integrity, to see that you are a person of character, and that your life reflects the things that you are saying. Well, God-given opportunity, Paul says, because of that, we do not lose heart. We see our ministry as God-given. We persevere in it because of that. We do not lose heart. You know, if there were anybody who could be excused for becoming discouraged and quitting, it would be the Apostle Paul. You know, beaten, left outside a city for dead. (laughs) That is tough. That can be discouraging. and But Paul says, having this ministry from God, however, we do not lose heart. Or to put it positively, we persevere. Personal integrity in witness, in ministry, whatever it is, means that we don't quit at the first sign of resistance or the first discouraging setback, but we persevere. God has brought us here, God has given us opportunity, and we persevere in it. Also, in terms of personal integrity, uh, verse 2, we are above board in our methodology. Number 2, or verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. Now here, Paul is saying this with one eye directed at those who are trying to subvert his ministry and his testimony to the church in Corinth. Uh, And certainly in Paul's day and In ours, there are those who operate in the name of Jesus with what Paul terms disgraceful and underhanded ways, practicing cunning, tactics, deceit. For what purpose? Well, perhaps to gain a following of people, perhaps to uh, enlarge uh, the finances of the ministry or the personal bank account of the one running the ministry or involved in it. Certainly we're not uh, unacquainted with such things in our own day. Paul says we have renounced that. We don't do that. We don't engage in underhanded means toward what we would say is a good end. Hunter was speaking about that in developing relationships with people, loving people not because they're a potential convert, but because they're a person made in the image of God. But because they are a person who needs Jesus, yes, but they are a person of value in their own right. People can perceive if you're making overtures of friendship because you want to win them to Jesus. And honestly, when people get that sense, they feel somewhat used, that, you're, that they are merely a means to an end. People deserve to be loved for who they are, as a man or woman made in the image of God. Uh, Although the means in there certainly is is a good one and a desirable one. Uh, But Paul here says we've renounced these kinds of disgraceful or underhanded ways of manipulating people, of uh, trying to get them to do what we want or to get what we want from them. But not only above board in our methodology, but above board in our... Uh, dealing with God's Word. Look at what he says. Or to tamper with God's Word. Many a good sermon idea has hit the bottom of the trash can due to good exegesis. The text really doesn't say what I thought at first it said. Or, you know, every preacher's nightmare about ten minutes before the service, you suddenly read the verse and you realize, this doesn't say what I thought it said. Okay, do I preach it like what I thought it said, or do I preach it as what it really is and have to toss out that great illustration that illustrated what I thought it said, but it doesn't really say. But I really wanted to use that illustration because it was so good, because I haven't had a good one in four weeks. And uh, But no, you can't tamper with God's truth. You can't make it try to make it say what it does not say. You can't leave out the things that it does say. And so Paul says we don't tamper with God's word because he approaches his work with personal integrity. But that involves speaking plainly the truth of God. By the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Speaking the truth of God lovingly, yes, but without diluting and without soft peddling The claims of Christ, the end of those who reject Christ, all of these things um, that often are left out by those who would claim to be gospel preachers, where the truth is omitted, where the hard things that Christ himself says are either ignored or played down uh, so as not to offend people but in the process, perhaps consigning people to hell by the very omission of the truth that they need to hear. So Paul says that we speak the truth plainly, and in so doing, we commend ourselves to the consciences of people. Paul wants a reputation of integrity, and curiously enough, instead of off-putting people, it confirms in their conscience his integrity as a minister of God's Word for the right people and for you in ministry to others, in your conversation, interactions with others. Yes, there may be those who are offended by what you say, but you have to say it in love and because of love, you have to say it. Uh, But in fact, in those people that God wants to reach through you, it will only serve to commend you because your motives and your love are clear in that you are willing to say even things that are difficult, and ideally in a context of your demonstrated care and love for this person. Paul would say, and we'll look at this, Lord willing, when we get there over in chapter 6, uh, that his great desire is that whatever people, however people respond to his ministry, that they see integrity in him. Uh, In chapter 6, verse 3, he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And he lists these different things. The suffering, the hardship that he endured, the afflictions, his purity, his faithfulness. All of these things. And we should want those to be evident in our own lives. Because the first leg of faithful ministry, faithful new covenant witness... His personal integrity. And if you don't have that, if that has been compromised, if that has been lost, then you'll never get to the rest of it. You'll never get to the other two legs because your personal integrity or lack thereof is such an obstacle that it is not easily overcome. But there is a second leg that Paul mentions here. Not only personal integrity, but good theology. Good theology, especially Theology about people. Theologically, it's called anthropology, not to be confused with the other science of anthropology, the study of people, study of cultures, and so forth, but rather the theology of people, theology of man. We would say Christology is the theology about Jesus, who he is, what he came to do. Theology proper, uh, the doctrine of God. Well, anthropology is the doctrine of man. What does the Bible say? About people, What the Bible has to say about people in their natural state is not flattering. People are sinners. People are blind. People are lost. People are dead. That's what the Bible says about us. And good theology, as we deal with people, especially unbelievers, recognizes that. Look at verses 3 through 4. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled... Now, remember, he'd been using that term back in chapter 3 uh, of the Israelites being blind to the truth, being veiled. He speaks of this veil being over their hearts up in chapter 3, verse 15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So Paul says here in verse 4 or verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. What does our theology tell us about people? Well, it tells us that they are spiritually dead. Paul Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not just a little sick, not very sick, but flatlined. DOA, you've expired. You were dead spiritually. Uh, the gospel is veiled, yes, to those who are spiritually dead. Uh, Not only that, they also have the problem in that Satan is at work. Satan operates to keep them in the dark, to put it that way. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you've been through the Explorers class, you'll you'll recall that one of the things that we talk about in fact the very first lesson we talk about the parable of the sower parable of also called the parable of the soils and Jesus describes the seed that's sown and some of it falls on a path the path is hard the seed just lies there on the path, and the birds come and uh take away the the seed and Jesus Interpreting the parable says that Satan comes and takes away the seed of God's word that just lies on their dead heart. It cannot receive it, it doesn't receive it, and Satan comes and takes it away. Well, the scriptures speak of Satan in different places. In Ephesians, he's called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. It's a curious expression. How much power does Satan have over this world? We thought God was the god of this world. Well, yes, of course God is is the God, the ruler, the creator of this world. But there is a sense in which this world belongs to Satan. Remember, Satan could approach Jesus and say, look out at all this grandeur, the glories of the world, all of it, I will give you. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't say, Satan, it's not yours to give. And in one sense it's not, but in another sense it is, because the world has declared its allegiance to Satan. Beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Will they follow God? Will they obey his word? Or will they follow Satan and disobey? They they chose Satan. Chose poorly. But chose, they did, and they chose Satan. Uh, And so because the allegiance of this world is to Satan, he can be called the God of this world, the one who is at work in this world, the one who owns the hearts of millions and millions and millions of people. And so Paul says here, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So yes, people are dead, they're they're veiled because they're dead, they're perishing, they're on their way to hell, and Satan sees to it as best he can that people don't hear the gospel, and hearing it that it's nonsense to them, that it's repugnant, it's offensive, because it threatens their own autonomy. And it threatens, of course, in Satan's case, their allegiance to him. By the way, one of the best theologies you can read about Satan uh, is uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. It takes some getting used to because it's upside down. Good is bad and bad is good. It's told from Satan's point of view. So what he describes as evil is what we normally would think of as good. But it's, it's without citing scripture texts uh, or references. It is very biblical, although quite imaginative. In its uh, in its analysis of uh, how Satan works, how sin works in the human heart, and uh, it's it's a it's it gives lessons about our own hearts and about the very things that we wrestle with and think about, and maybe helps us to see them in a new way. So I commend it to you if you've never read it, the Screw Tape Letters, uh, in a in a humorous way about a very serious subject. Well, the problem is not the gospel. The problem is the sinner. The fact that a blind man does not see the sun does not mean the sun is not shining in all of its radiant brilliance. It is. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is the sinful, blind, and Satan-owned and hindered hearts of fallen people. And so good theology always reminds us. That people are not neutral. That it's not just a matter of getting them the right information. It's not just a matter of my being persuasive or clear enough. And that if if they don't believe somehow I have failed. Good theology helps us to love people. Because it reminds us they're not just being obstinate. They're not just being cantankerous and difficult and stubborn. They're being dead. And they're acting Absolutely consistently with a spiritual corpse. Instead of making us angry when they don't respond the way we want them to, it should fill our hearts with all the more compassion to realize they're in the clutches of Satan. And the only one who can deliver them is not you, but Christ. And that brings us then to the third leg. Personal integrity, good theology, and the right priority. Look at verses 5 and 6 for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake for god who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of christ jesus the right priority we we, we proclaim jesus not ourselves now, again, Paul says this with a sidelong glance at his detractors. Uh, in fact, uh, with, in, in his letter to the Galatians, a different situation, different condition, uh, he refers to his uh, opponents as seeking to draw a following for themselves. For the thrill, the ego trip, whatever it might be, of gathering a following for themselves. Well, here Paul makes it very plain what we proclaim is not ourselves thinking about dr kennedy in his death uh, dr kennedy certainly did not proclaim proclaim himself and yet he started that church and he was a minister of that church for a very long time and he as one human being will be very much missed in that church in one sense that's quite understandable And and really true in any church where someone's been a pastor for a long time. Uh, And in a church like Coral Ridge, where not only was he there a long time, he was the founder, the organizing pastor of the church. And sometimes it's almost inescapable, try as one might, uh, to not become irreplaceable. Because no one is. Not even a a, a Dr. Kennedy. Not even an R.C. Sproul. And yet, nevertheless, his absence will be and is now being keenly felt in that church. And, you know, ministers sometimes refer to my church. And I, as we'll look at in Ecclesiastes, I think to quibble with that is being overly righteous, because we know what's meant. I'm not claiming the church is belonging to me. It's a convenient way of speaking. The church I serve as pastor, which is a lot more words. But we, we know it's meant when a minister says, My church. A minister is prostituting his calling if his goal is to draw a following for himself. No man is indispensable in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. His goal is not to win a following for himself. It's not to hold on to his church or have control over his church or fight for that as if somehow this is his right his inheritance. And I'll also say... To me, it seems really strange when a son follows his father as the pastor of a church. It's not a family business. It's not something to be passed on almost as a matter of course to, from father to the son. Now, God may call the son to it. That may be entirely appropriate, but it's not the family business. You do not belong to me. You belong to Christ. And I'm sinning badly if my purpose is to draw a following for myself or somehow make myself indispensable to you or to this church. Your dependence is not on me or on any human minister. Ultimately, it's on Christ. And Paul knows that. And that's why he says here, what we proclaim is not ourselves. Paul doesn't want a following for himself as if his ego somehow needed that. But Jesus Christ as Lord, Paul's nothing, Paul waters, Paul planted, Apollo's waters, God gives the increase. Paul has put a servant, a means to an end. Now, Paul does go on to say here, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul is not absolutely their servant, he's not at their beck and call, but he is to serve them because he serves Jesus. Because he's a servant of Jesus in an absolute sense, then he serves the church for which Jesus died. And that certainly should be our attitude toward those to whom we minister. They do not belong to you. They are not your project. You may be the means that God uses to plant a seed in their hearts. You may be the means that God uses to water that seed. And and praise God, you may be the instrument that God uses to bring that seed to fruition in a conversion. But they're not yours. You might... Bring them to Christ through your witness, you might lead them to growth in Christ by your discipleship, but their allegiance is not to you, it's to Jesus, and, and must be that way. And you are their servant, as I am your servant for Jesus' sake. Because, as Paul goes on in verse 6 to, to finish, it's God who is the one who saves Just as God called light to shine in darkness when he created the world, he calls light to shine in darkness when he recreates a human heart. It's amazing to think that any time someone comes to faith in Christ, what happened at creation is essentially happening again. God is calling light out of darkness, something where there was nothing, life out of death. Dear friends, no human being can do that. I can't do that. You can't do that. Only God can do that. And he chooses to do that through the plain speaking of gospel truth. Our fallen sinful condition and God's holiness. God's grace in sending a Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And then God's offer of salvation and eternal life to all who will believe in him and turning from their sins to do so. A simple message. In the first letter that we have to the Corinthians, Paul refers to his foolishness. And to, to human beings, it is foolishness. It's too naive. It's too simple. How could such a thing possibly work? Well, there's no man-made, humanly devised strategy or approach that can bring light out of darkness, that can bring life out of death. But God glorifies himself by using the simple truths of the gospel to do just that. So that the praise is not yours, but his. It's not mine, but his. And so as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he needs to get back to some of these basics. Because they were being confused by people who were practicing underhanded ways. Who were twisting the word of God to their own advantage. And he comes back and he reminds them, and he reminds me, and he reminds you, The foundation for a good witness, a good ministry, whether it's my service to you as pastor of this church or our elders' service as leaders of this church or your ministry to one another or our service as a congregation to our community. A good new covenant ministry is based on these three legs and stands on these three legs of our personal integrity, of good theology, and the right priority. We point people to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the simplicity and yet the tremendous power of gospel truth. Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. Never be ashamed of these simple truths because they are the truth that you use to transform lives and families and even communities. Father, help us to have faith and confidence in the power of your word to build your kingdom here in this world. I pray, Father, that we would be people of the highest integrity, of true gospel character, gospel holiness, and that would be evident. It would help us to have a right understanding of our own hearts and the people into whose lives you place us. And, Father, help us always to proclaim not ourselves, and not even ultimately what you've done in us, but who Christ is and what he has done in his life and death, and resurrection. And so, Father, you pray you would build your kingdom, glorify your name, and let us have the joy of being a part of that, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.